Maybe you heard the story about Dante Toro, this high school quarterback in New York who ran 73 yards for a touchdown on October 17th. It was a Saturday game. And as he crossed the goal line, this is how he celebrated. Brief moment, he raised his hand, pointed his finger to the heavens, and that was it. And without many seconds passing, the referee took that yellow flag and threw it and penalized Toro for unsportsmanlike conduct. I do not know why the referee threw that flag. Perhaps he was caught up in the moment. Perhaps he genuinely thought it was excessive celebration and taunting of the other team. Uh, Perhaps he just simply, in the whim of the moment, made a mistake. Or could it be? We don't know. But could it be that that flag was thrown out of an ideology that was set against any public display of honoring the one true God. And this is what I want to remind us today, that more and more in this country, the penalty flag is thrown when God's people publicly do what comes natural to the Christian, and that is to praise our God and Savior in heaven There is a cosmic conflict that is going on and has been going on since Genesis chapter 3. Satan, that rebellious fallen angel, that rebellious fallen angel who is limited in power and in every other way, he is a created being who is under God's sovereign control at every moment is yet a worthy adversary of the people of God. And what lies behind the penalty flag being thrown at Christians to penalize them in our culture and whatever that means because they have publicly done what comes natural to the Christian, and that is to honor our God and Savior. Whenever that flag is thrown, it is out of this greater cosmic conflict between the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan that is bent on, that is determinedly seeking to destroy the kingdom of God and the church. And as we sang in our first hymn this morning, Let Your Kingdom Come, we know that God has already won. We have every reason to be optimistic, but nonetheless, the battle rages. And next week when we get to Reformation Sunday and we look more specifically at the passage that Jeff read this morning from Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be looking specifically at the spiritual warfare and the armament that God has afforded us, his people, to stand firm as Daniel did when he faced not the opposition of his colleagues in government, 
Because what is behind the conflicts that we see today, maybe the conflicts that we experience today because we're Christians, is simply an episode in this greater cosmic battle between Satan and Christ. And it's been the case throughout human history, church history, as we've seen God's people suffer more than just simply suffering the penalty of a penalty flag being thrown, but many of our fellow believers have gone to their deaths because they've stood faithful to God throughout church history. And the point that I want to make is what is behind the suffering and the the struggle of Daniel in Daniel chapter 6 is this very same battle that is raging even today, the conflict between the kingdom of men, the kingdom of Satan, and the kingdom of God. So we want to look today at two things. First of all, we find in this passage that those who were opposed to Daniel developed a plot, a very clever plot to discredit Daniel and to actually result in his ruin and destruction. And then secondly, we want to look at how Daniel responded to this. Daniel responded out of faithfulness. And so your sermon outline simply is, we'll we'll be looking at today, the plot and Daniel's faithfulness, and then next week we'll look at the spiritual warfare and the armament that God has given to us. So let's look first at the plot to get rid of Daniel. That's really the basis of this plot. You'll find it in verses 4 and 9. Well, what did we learn last week about Daniel? We learned last week about Daniel, as we read in verse 9, that he was distinguished. He was uh, distinguished as a statesman. He was distinguished as a saint and he was distinguished as an elder or senior citizen. Actually, this is verse 3 that uses that word, Daniel was distinguished. And he reached the pinnacle of his success as a statesman in his 80s when Darius had every intention to promote him to ruler over the whole uh, kingdom. And so that very uh, prospect of a promotion really played in the minds of those other satraps and presidents and those other officials in the government of Darius. And so we see in verse 4 that obviously Daniel's colleagues began to suffer probably some jealousy of Daniel's success, especially as this foreigner who has come and now who has been so successful and is about to be promoted to the entire to rule over the entire kingdom. And so what did they seek to do in verse 4 of Daniel chapter 6? They wanted to dig up some dirt on Daniel. If you want to discredit someone, find their faults, find their failures, and exploit them to the fullest. You know, it's interesting that in our day, just one black mark on your record can ruin you as a politician. And so digging up dirt on someone isn't new. And we see it right here in Daniel chapter 6. And so what they sought to do was to attack Daniel's work record. They, they wanted to attack him as a professional statesman. 
they, they probably wanted, wanted to see where, where maybe uh, Daniel abused his power as a statesman. Maybe Daniel skimmed off the top of the treasury a little bit to pad his, his pockets. Maybe Daniel was guilty of mismanagement at some point, at some time, in some place as he served as, as a statesman. Uh, surely there has to be something there that can be the downfall of Daniel as a statesman. And the problem that these conspirators found, the satraps, the presidents, and the other officials in Darius' government, is that they could not find anything. Look at verse 4. They found no ground for complaint or fault. And this is nothing but incredible concerning that Daniel served under three administrations, Nebuchadnezzar's, Belteshazzar's, and now Darius's. And his record was spotless. They could not dig up any dirt on him. Verse 5 tells us something incredibly important. It tells us something about the strategy that Daniel's enemies employed. And I just want to remind us of something that that one of the huge principles that we see in the entire book of Daniel is what I've already alluded to today in numerous places, this conflict between the kingdom of man, the city of man, as Augustine would say, and the kingdom of God or the city of God. The cosmic conflict between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ might be another way to say it. Of course, it begins in Genesis chapter 3, and we see that Satan is there uh, rate, w- uh, waging his, his war against God and his kingdom throughout the rest of church history, even up until our, de- our day. And as we look at Daniel chapter 1, for, e- for example, we, we see an episode of this, this cosmic conflict because Nebuchadnezzar goes to Jerusalem in 605 B.C. and he conquers Jerusalem and he exiles Daniel and his three friends and others. That is a representation of this great conflict that is taking place between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. As we go to Daniel chapter 2, we find there that, that image of, that represented Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, and, but yet we see what is being communicated there as though this battle is taking place, yet God will ultimately win. The kingdoms of men will fail no matter how hard they, they try. And then as we look at chapter 3, we find the episode of the fiery furnace where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are are commanded to bow down to that statue that Nebuchadnezzar erected. And they refused, and they went to their deaths, but yet, of course, they prevailed because of God. But yet, the intent of the kingdom of man is that God's people would turn from worshiping him and turn to worship man, in effect, to worship that which is false. At fault. And then Nebuchadnezzar rebelled against God, and he kept on rebelling against God, and finally God humbled him. And isn't that the way it goes with the kingdom of men? Continual rebellion against God, but yet for Nebuchadnezzar's sake, God humbled him and brought him to repentance. And then in chapter 5, we see Belteshar, who probably is the poster child for the kingdom of man, because there he, he conducts that pagan feast where God is blasphemed. And here again we see that as an expression of this great cosmic war that is taking place. Man making jest and making light of God and blaspheming Him at every turn. The point that I want to make is that we come now to chapter 
6. And yet again, we see another expression of this great conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And there's this repetition. Some would even say this mundane and boring repetition. But it's something that we need to hear because we can become so complacent. We can become so dull. We can become so, oh, it'll pass. No. The kingdom of men is said to destroy the kingdom of God. And we need to be reminded of it. And we need to understand the danger in it. We also need to see that God wins and that He gives us everything that we need to be faithful as His soldiers in this battle. This great conflict is raging today, and it's the backdrop of the conflict that we see in Daniel. It's the backdrop of the conflict that we say when a young man just wants to honor God, when he crosses the goal line and a penalty flag is thrown on him. It's, it's behind the conflict that you face at work when you may not get that promotion because you're a Christian or when you're ridiculed in your neighborhood because you go to church Sunday morning. There's a great battle that is going on, and it's the backdrop for the the episodes of conflict that we see in our day-to-day. We need to be mindful of it. I want to say that that those who are opposed to the kingdom of God are incredibly cunning and smart. They're not fools. And we see an example of this in, in Daniel's case. On the one hand, it is, it's very convenient for the enemies of the church when a Christian fails, be it an impropriety of, or breaking of some law or some moral failure, they really don't have to work very hard at digging up uh, dirt. You know, like, like those satraps and presidents, they are looking out for Christians to make a mistake and to trip up, especially with a moral failure or some black mark on the record, and they will exploit it and use it to discredit you, the Christian, discredit your church, and ultimately discredit your God. Now, do you see that taking place in culture? That when a Christian falls, it is played out in the public square. And so the strategy is to take the black mark on God's people and use it to destroy them and to destroy the church. So on a pastoral note, I think this should be convicting to all of us, starting with me, is that we should be very, very careful about how we live. Because it really isn't our failure. It is a failure that will ultimately dishonor God and culture. But that's not the primary way the enemies of God want to destroy the church. It's easy. I mean, it's low-hanging fruit when a Christian fails. (laughs) So if you want to help the pagans destroy the church, just, just keep on failing. But there's a more profound way that the enemies of God want to destroy the church. And it's what we find here in Daniel. They tried finding some moral failure or or some black mark on Daniel's work record. They couldn't find anything. They couldn't dig up any dirt on Daniel. 
So what did they do? They went, aha, Daniel worships Yahweh. And so we will focus like a laser on his relationship with God. And that's where we'll try to bring him primarily to a place where he has to make a choice between being loyal to his God or saving his life. And so this really is the strategy that the kingdom of men will employ if there's no low-hanging fruit of some black mark of moral failure that they can exploit and discredit you and the church of God in hopes of destroying the, the church's influence and culture. And so what we find is that they, they said in verse 5, maybe we can file a complaint against Daniel in connection with the law of his God. And so their strategy is simple. They orchestrated this whole thing. They agreed together. It was premeditated. It was a slick plan. It was a well-devised plot. And there were two aspects to it. They had to devise this plot in terms of Daniel, and they had to devise this plot in terms of Darius the king. And so they worked the Daniel side. They said, we know Daniel is loyal to Yahweh. We know that he uh, prescribes to God's uh, law. We, we know that he is not going to be disloyal to God. And so what we need to do is to devise a plan so that he will be put in direct conflict with King Darius if he remains faithful to Yahweh. And then what they did is they, they manipulated Darius by this 30-day edict that says you can't petition any god or any man except for Darius, just 30 days. And if you violate that, you get thrown in the lion's den. Not that big of a deal, Darius. I mean, we can do anything for 30 days, right? And so Darius then signs this edict. But they were clever because they knew the law of the Medes and Persian, Persians in that when a king signs an edict, it is irrevocable. And so they knew that they could manipulate Darius into devising this edict that would put Daniel in direct conflict with Darius if Daniel <laughs> obeyed his God. So if you think that those who are enemies of the kingdom of God are fools, think again. Let me just go over a couple of scriptures uh, with you. In Matthew chapter 4, when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he was very clever and cunning. He tempted Jesus with three things provision, his own life, and power. And as we look at Ephesians chapter 6 that was read this morning, how is Satan described or how is Satan's work described? Schemes, clever schemes, cunning schemes to trip up Christians so they can be discredited and ultimately God dishonored. 
And then as we look at Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, Satan is described as the deceiver. And I want to look for just a moment. I want to read a portion of, of 1 Peter, in particular chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded, Peter says. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Cunningly so. Schemingly so. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14, Satan's cunning is, is related to the warning that Paul gives the church about false teachers, that these false teachers go around like they're apostles of Christ, but they're actually false. And, and then he says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And then our final passage that I'll read just to to remind us of how cunning Satan is, how subtle the temptation can be to turn from God and embrace the world is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 10. And this is in the context of Jesus' second coming and that finally uh, Satan is going to be destroyed and it's about the, the... Uh, Satan's antichrist leading up to that great final uh, judgment on Satan and how much harm they do. And we read this, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And my point is simply this, that this war being waged by Satan against the church, the tactics are very clever oftentimes, scheming and cunning, and we need to be aware of it. As Peter says, be watchful, be careful. And so the success of this diabolical plan Depended on two people, like I've said, it depended on Darius. They appealed to his ego. Hey, Darius, for 30 days, any petition must come directly to you. Boy, you're a big shot. They also appealed to the law of the Medes and and, and the Persians. And the trap was set. But but, but success also, and so they could count on, on Darius. Oh, man, that sounds good to me. Sure, that'll feed my pride. Great. Let's bring it on. Give me the document. I'll sign it. But the plot also depended on Daniel's faithfulness. And you know what's interesting about this? These satraps, presidents, these these rulers, these people that were trying to dig up dirt on Daniel and wanted him to fail and wanted him to be destroyed, they could count on Daniel to be faithful to his God. And I want to ask a question. Can those in the world that want to destroy the church count on you and me to be faithful to God? To be faithful to Jesus? Would they so devise a plot that hinges on our doing the right thing? That's convicting, isn't it? But that's the way it should be. That we are so faithful like Daniel, by the grace of God, that the world can count on it. (laughs) And they use that as part of their plan to destroy the church which they cannot do. Does that make sense to you? Does that cause you to seek, to understand what's so important for us to be faithful 
in this day and time? The odds were in their favor because Daniel was faithful. We read about this under the second point of the sermon outline in verses 10, 10 through 15. We want to deal with one matter about, about Daniel's practice. Daniel's practice was three times a day to kneel facing Jerusalem and to make petitions to God and to give thanks to God. And the question is, is that part of God's law? Well, certainly, kneeling and standing in prayer are postures that are represented in Scripture. Certainly, praying, even Psalm 55 alludes to the fact that praying three times a day is not a bad thing to do. And Solomon, in his prayer of dedication at the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 through 50, prays... uh, ask or mentions Israel who will be taken into captivity praying toward their land that God would once again give them rest in the city of their fathers. And so we, we see that there are some instances where the actual things that Daniel did are not contrary to Scripture, but we are commanded to pray but yet so much of that is left up to one's discipline. Here, here's my point. Daniel's discipline in prayer appeared to the satraps and presidents to be a function of God's law that is commanded, but in reality we need to take them that this was Daniel's personal devotional practice. That was not because it was commanded, but it was something that flowed out of his heart, a heart full of devotion towards God. But nonetheless, so Discipline was Daniel, so devoted was Daniel that you could set your watch by the time that Daniel went to do his personal devotions before God three times a day. And so we find then that that Daniel goes to, after this edict, he's in full knowledge of this edict, he's in full knowledge of the sanction that came along with this edict, that whoever makes a petition to anyone else or any god other than Darius would be thrown in the lines then. He was in full knowledge of that. And the text tells us that Daniel goes to his, his home with the windows open towards Jerusalem. And three times a day he continues the, dis- the devotional discipline that was very much a part of his relationship with God. And he prayed, made petitions to God, and gave thanks to God. And the text at the end of verse 10 says, as he had done previously. And here's the amazing thing about Daniel. Knowing that remaining faithful to God meant his death, he did not make one detour in his devotion to God. Not one step out of line. He continued as he had done previously. And brothers and sisters, that should speak volumes to us in our day. That as the challenges and as the ridicule and as the the penalty flags are are thrown on us today, we should continue as we have been under God's grace, fully devoted to Him. And so, of course, now the trap is not only set but sprung. And what's amazing to me is that 
these many officials that were poised against Daniel had agreement with, with one another to set the trap, had agreement with one another to go and invade Daniel's private devotional space because they were spying on him to see indeed if he would continue his practice, and he did. And so the, the trap was sprung, and they immediately went to uh, Darius in verses 11 through 13. They agreed with one another about what they would say. It was all premeditated, and they reported this uh, to Darius. And in, in verse 13, they charged Daniel with violating the king's edict. They remind the king that he had put his signature on there, and the law of the Medes of the Persians says it cannot be revoked. But another interesting thing is this, that Darius, even though they said, Daniel has basically thumbed his nose at you, Darius. He has shown utter contempt for you, Darius. But Darius was trying to figure out a way in verse 15 to rescue Daniel from the lion's den. It's an interesting twist to this whole affair. But the accusers came, and they held Darius' feet to the fire to fulfill what the law demanded. And that was Daniel's death by being thrown into the lion's den. Now here's where I want to bring us. This whole thing could have been avoided. The whole lion's den episode could have been stopped dead in its tracks. You know how? I mean, just 30 days. Come on. Daniel, just don't pray for 30 days for crying out loud. It's not that big of a deal. Darius did not say, bow down to me. Darius did not say, bow down in that statue. He just said, don't pray for 30 days. Big deal. Okay, Daniel, so you have to pray. Good gracious man, don't continue like you have been doing in your open window facing Jerusalem. Have you never heard of a prayer closet? Go pray in your prayer closet. Hide. Just 30 days. Or hide. The edict really wasn't that demanding. And it doesn't seem like a big compromise. But Daniel saw it as totally caving. And he remained faithful to God. How do we define sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So sin is doing something God has told us not to do. But also sin is not doing something God has told us to do. And God had told Daniel and God tells you and God tells me that we are to be fully devoted to him. That we are to be those who pray. That we are not to be conformed to the world. That we are to be conformed by the renewing of our minds to God and his kingdom. And Daniel said, I'm not going to sin by committing a transgression And I'm not going to sin by not doing what God has told me to do. In other words, I'm going to obey God rather than men. And so even though we might say, hey, Daniel, you could have hidden, or Daniel, it's just 30 days, just give it up, man, for a month, and then get back to praying. Daniel saw it as sin. And we should see such as sin, too. When we have a choice to make, 
to continue living faithful before God as we have been called and as we have done in the past when we are faced with this choice of obeying God rather or obeying men rather than God with being faithful to God versus saving our own hide Daniel continued to be faithful to Yahweh and there are two lessons here first we are to follow Daniel's example just in in standing firm in faithfulness they could not dig up any dirt on Daniel and you and I know that Daniel had black marks. We know that he was a sinner. We, we know that he needed forgiveness. We know that he wasn't perfect. We know all of that, but nonetheless, they couldn't dig up any dirt on him. In other words, Daniel was, Daniel's life was a life of faithfulness to God, and he stood firm in that reality. He, started, he, he stood firm in faith, seeking to honor God, and so should we in our lives. But here's the second lesson is that Daniel stood firm, as he had done in the past, when his life depended on it. Listen, there's a difference us being faithful when it's convenient or when life is going well. But boy, when the heat comes and when the pressure comes and when our job depends on it and when the health of our family, the well-being of our family depends on it, and when our very life may depends on it, when our reputation depends on it, well, things start getting a little sporty, don't they? And yet Daniel, by God's grace, stood firm, not only in the mundane affairs of life, but in the intense pressure of spiritual warfare. Now stay tuned for next week when we'll look more specifically at the provisions that have been made that for us to stand firm in spiritual warfare as we look at Ephesians chapter 6. But for today, I want us to consider Daniel's lesson, standing firm faithfully when life is great and when the persecution comes. You, you may remember um, hearing about the Boxer Rebellion in China back in, in the 1900s. The Boxer Rebellion uh, came about because a secret society in China was against Western influence in China, and they sought out to halt that Western influence in its tracks. And one of the main influences from the West that they saw was Christianity. And Mary Reed's great-grandfather uh, ministered in China, I believe, during uh, the Boxer Rebellion. And so many Chinese Christians suffered persecution. Many Western missionaries suffered persecution because of this persecution of this secret society to eradicate Western influence. One episode in the Boxer Rebellion was there was a mission station and a group of these, these antagonists, these enemies of Christ and the church and the influence of Christianity in China surrounded the entire mission compound. They blocked off all of the, of the gates and exits from that compound and they left one gate and exit open. And then they took a big cross, wooden cross, and they placed that, that wooden cross right in the pathway in that gate so that no one could exit that mission station 
unless they trampled on that cross. And then they said to the people in the mission compound, you have a choice. You can walk out of the compound and show your disloyalty to Jesus by, by trampling on that cross, and you will go free. If you don't do it, you will face the firing squad. And so there were seven students in that compound that were terrified. And they walked out of the, the building and down the sidewalk and showed their disloyalty to Jesus by trampling over that cross. And their lives were spared. But there was one young girl, the next one to come out, who refused to trample on that cross. And she said, I will not dishonor my Savior. And the rest of the people in that compound followed her example. And they all were martyred by the firing squad. I do not know what's coming our way as a nation, as a country, and as a church. Maybe all this, the persecution that, that we will suffer because, like Daniel, we stand firm and we honor God in every way. Maybe the only persecution that we will suffer is that a penalty flag will be thrown and we will be penalized for uns- unhuman-like conduct, unworldly-like conduct. But I do not think that it's too far-fetched to think that there may be coming more severe persecution for those of us in this country who are committed to remain faithful to Jesus you know, we're in a spiritual battle. And we are called to be like Daniel. To continue being devoted to Jesus as we have been. To risk even death in order to honor our King and Savior and to be loyal to Him. And next week as we come to Ephesians 6, we'll be encouraged to see the powerful spiritual weapons, the armament that has been afforded to us. But for today, I want you to reflect upon this. Am I living giving praise and honor publicly to my king in how I conduct my life, regardless of the penalty flags thrown on me? Or am I denying Christ and hiding 
trying to protect myself. Brothers and sisters, we're not called to be cowards. We're called to be soldiers of the cross. And to stand firm in Jesus, irrespective of the penalty imposed by this world. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to give us grace and to give us a heavenly perspective, to give us encouragement, knowing that your kingdom has come, is already here and will come in full one day. But Father, in this day, you've called us to be faithful, to be loyal, and we know our weaknesses, and we know our tendency to self-protection. Father, give us more and more a heart that would be like that of Daniel, that would be like that young Christian in that mission compound back in the 1900s who stood firm for Jesus and died. May we stand firm for Jesus, irrespective of persecution. And Father, you call, what you call us to do, you also supply what we need. And so we look in anticipation to focus upon that provision for the spiritual battle as we come together once again next week. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for calling us to be yours. Uh, thank you for the fact that, that we are part of a kingdom that has already prevailed. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.